everybody, and welcome to I Just Want to Talk About the Bible. I think that today, uh, this episode right now is going to be a little bit shorter than some, uh, and that's just how it's going to be. Some episodes are going to be much longer than others. I'm not necessarily striving to keep it within a certain time frame, just because the very nature of what we do here is going to vary a lot. For example, if I'm answering a question, that might only take five to 10 minutes. Whereas if I'm sharing some large thing that the Lord has showed me, that could take 45 minutes or an hour. And so I'm going to try to not be long winded or anything, but I'm, I'm not going to abbreviate it either. So, but today will be a little bit shorter and we are going to be discussing what I hope will be a useful tool in your hand as you read the Bible and think through topics. And that it'll also be a, a practical tool for you just to use in day-to-day life. So, um, the title of today is It Is Also Written. It is also written. And some of you have already identified where that comes from and is going to be the temptation account uh, in the life of Jesus. In the life of Jesus, one specific aspect of it. So we're familiar with the temptation account. Uh, Jesus has come onto the scene. He has been baptized. And immediately he is led by the Spirit up into the wilderness to be Uh, tempted by the devil. And we know that the Lord Jesus overcomes all the temptations, all the temptations. But I want to look at one specific tactic of the enemy and how Jesus responded to it in this passage. Now, we know that all three times Jesus's answer was, it is written, it is written, it is written. He was always coming back with the word of God in response to the enemy's temptation. And that that is a lesson in and of itself. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12 says. And so when we're you know, fighting against the enemy, we need to remember this. It's the sword of the spirit. We don't need to rely on um, anything that we can produce. But like Paul said, the weapons of our warfare are divine. The word of God and prayer. So, but one particular thing. I am going to read Matthew 4, 5 through 7, and then we're going to talk about this. This is what it says. Matthew 4, 5 through 7. Then the devil took him, being Jesus, of course, then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what is the enemy doing here? The enemy comes along and he's trying to get Jesus to do something that is counter to the will of God, yet he's using scripture to do so. Notice the enemy said, it is written. And then he quotes Psalm 91. Um, But then Jesus said, again, it is written. Or your translation might say, it is also written. So about this, about this where the enemy uses the word of God in a way to try to get Jesus to do something ungodly, I heard or read an incredible quote one time about this, and I cannot remember where I heard it from, where I read it. I tried to find it, and so I'm I'm saying at the outset, I'm quoting something I heard, and then I'm just going to be expounding on it. And if you happen to know where it's from, email me at I just want to talk about at gmail.com, and I will include the proper citation in the footnotes, and I'll give credit where credit is due. But I, I can't remember off the top of my head. But this is the quote. For every it is written, there is an it is also written. For every it is written, there is an it is also written. 
So let's look at what the enemy was trying to do. We know that the enemy was trying to get Jesus essentially to sin. He was trying to get Jesus to do things in a way contrary to the will of God. But it really gets murky when he used the word of God to do it. So what exactly did the enemy do? Simply put, the enemy took one verse, one principle, one passage in isolation from the rest of the scriptures. And this is what happens. When one verse is taken in isolation from the rest of the scriptures, it can actually lead us to do ungodly things. One verse, one passage, one principle, just isolated from the rest. Listen to these verses. In Matthew 4, 4, the verse immediately before this, Jesus said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Look at that word, every. Every word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Uh, Psalm 119, 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. What is the common thread between all those verses? It is including the entire word of God. Uh, Man does live by bread alone, but by every word. All scripture is God-breathed. The sum of your word is truth. So what's the point? The point is this. I believe that there are many times that we as believers lose the battle of spiritual warfare because the enemy is doing with us what he tried to do with Jesus and we don't realize it. Taking one verse, one passage, or one principle alone can do all sorts of of damage and lead us into all sorts of godly places. Let me give you a uh, simple and kind of humorous example because you're going to see how ridiculous it is just at the outset. So, Proverbs 13.22a says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That's great. Okay, so a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So the idea is that this this man is is wise enough with his money, and he sets some aside so that he can leave an inheritance to his children, which is a good thing. But he's he's so good with it, and he's so wise and so prudent financially that he's able to leave his grandchildren an inheritance. That's a great thing. That's, that's great. Everybody, everybody would say, wow, that's, that's wonderful. But let me show you what can happen if you take that one passage in isolation. Suppose that same man were walking down the street and he encountered a homeless man, a beggar. And the beggar said, please, anything. I'm so hungry. And that man thought to himself, mm, I can't. I can't give this guy any money because the Bible says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And if I give this man money, then I am not going to have as much to save for my grandchildren. So he walks away and he doesn't give the man money. Now, of course, you and I would say, well, that's just that's just silly. It is just silly um, because, yes, it is written a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but it is also written, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Uh, Proverbs nineteen seventeen, And then Proverbs eleven twenty four through 25 says, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. And then, of course, we have passages like Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus talks all about uh, finances and possessions, uh, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, and things like that. And so, yeah, 
Proverbs 13.22 about the inheritance is in the Bible, but so are these other ones. And so we make a great mistake when we ignore certain passages and highlight others. And you see people do this all the time with different hot topics in Christianity, controversial issues. A lot of times it's called proof texting where you have a stance and you're just looking for a passage to back up your stance. But in so doing, you're forced to neglect the rest of the Bible. So we should be very humble. We should be very humble about this stuff because we, we need to make sure that we're not taking the bait and looking only at one thing in isolation from the rest of the Bible. Let me give you another example that is a little bit more serious, actually. Proverbs 19, verse 11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. And Proverbs 29, 11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. So, you know, based on these two passages, we could conclude, wow, well, if I'm ever wronged, if I'm ever hurt or, you know, mistreated or something like that, I should just remain silent. I should never do or say anything, but just, you know, grin and bear it. Well, you know, those verses do say it's our glory to overlook an offense, but, you know, it is, it is also written here in Luke chapter 17, flip in there right now, Luke chapter 17, verse 3 says this. It says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Okay? So, but it says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. Rebuke him. That is an active response. That's not just remaining silent. It's, it's verbal. Another place where we see something very similar to this is going to be in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. This is also a pretty popular passage. I'm flipping there now. Galatians 6, 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That requires confrontation. Does it not? That requires confrontation. And then probably one of the most famous passages when we're talking about this sort of topic of forgiveness, reconciliation, and all of that is going to be Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Let's see, maybe a few more verses. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So confront your brother. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so we see that, wow, in one passage, it says, overlook an offense. In another passage, it says, well, you know, confront the person. Confront the person. So what do we do? How do we handle these things that are, you know, tensions, really? Well, we all know the famous passage in Ecclesiastes. It says there's a time for this and a time for that, right? There's a time for everything under heaven. And I think that there is a lot of wisdom that applies to this circumstance in that. And so the answer to knowing when to do what is wrapped up in the word wisdom. Wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom has been defined as having skill in living. Just being good at living. That Just good at life. Uh, wisdom has been defined as knowing which path to take, implying that other paths will lead to destruction. It is, it is knowing how to decide on difficult circumstances and knowing the right thing to do. We desperately need wisdom. 
Honestly, a lot of times we will try to make matters even more black and white so that we don't have to walk in wisdom. It's just, oh, every single time I encounter a circumstance remotely close to this one, I just have my stock solution. Check. But that's not right. That's not right. And because circumstances are different, and we have to remember, take into consideration the whole counsel of God, all scriptures God breathed. Yes, it is written, but it is also written. So we need wisdom. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So wisdom comes from the Lord. We need to begin with trust in him. We need to not lean on our own understanding, meaning we don't do what just seems right to us. But in every single decision we make, we acknowledge him. Listen, the longer we live, the higher the stakes get. The longer we live, the more people are affected by our decisions and the more collateral damage we can cause. So it's very important. We need to acknowledge God in all of our decisions. Every single decision we make needs to be, you know, Lord, what do you think about this? To which you would respond, well, that you're pretty much going to be praying all day long if that's the case. Well, yeah, I mean, this is going, this is going to be a way that we learn to develop a constant dialogue with the Lord. Lord, what do you think about this? What should I do in this? Let me read you now Proverbs 2, it's verses 1 through 15. It's a little lengthy of a passage, but it is one of the best passages on wisdom. Listen, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord, and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil and from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of righteousness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. You can tell from that passage that the Lord wants to give us wisdom. Listen to those promises. If you seek it, if you raise your voice, if you cry out for it, if you seek it like silver, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and you will find the knowledge of God. The Lord gives wisdom. You will understand righteousness and justice and equity. Every good path, wisdom will come into your heart. James, in James chapter 1, has a, has a similar promise. Last week, we looked at James 1, 2 through 4. This, this is verses 5 through 8. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom which in truth is all of us. We all need wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Quick side note on that word, without reproach, that phrase, that means without heaping insults upon you. You know what that means? God is not disappointed that you don't have the wisdom. He's not disappointed that you don't know what to do. He knows us. He wants to give that wisdom to us. We just need to humble ourselves and come to him. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted, but everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. So carrying on. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
And I could even refer to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3 when he asked the Lord for wisdom. The text explicitly says it pleased the Lord that Solomon asked for this. It pleases God when we ask for wisdom. He wants to give us wisdom. We must ask for it, though. We must humble ourselves. So let me talk about how that wisdom oftentimes comes. Um, first off, we have to come in desperation to God. We have to absolutely come in total and complete desperation to God. Um, Dr. Bennett, who was uh, the founder of the ministry that I'm on staff with and a, and a mentor of mine, used to say that the kingdom of God is not for the well-meaning but for the desperate. Matthew 5, 3 said, blessed, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The term poor in spirit... The word poor, there's a couple words for poor in the New Testament, but this word is patokos. It is. It does not picture somebody who has to work daily for money. It pictures somebody who is so utterly destitute and poor that they can't even make ends meet on a day-to-day basis. And unless someone intervenes and puts something into their open, outstretched, empty hands, they, they will, they're ruined. Jesus says that kind of person is blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When we come to God with that attitude of, Lord, unless you fill these empty hands, I am ruined. Oh, the Lord honors that. So the first thing we do is we come to him in desperation, praying. And the Lord will give supernatural wisdom. Listen, there, there, is, there are times, it says the spirit of God leads us into all truth. When we're going through our day-to-day life and we will just know the right thing to do because we are just walking by the spirit. That's valid. Another way is just to really get familiar with the text, that is to say the Bible. This is part of the value of memorizing and meditating upon the scriptures. Not just memorizing, but but meditating upon the scriptures, rolling them over in your mind, praying and asking that God will enlighten the eyes of your heart. The more we know the text, the more we can say, well, it is also written. Remember, the Holy Spirit says, the Bible says that he brings to our remembrance all that Jesus said. And so we have a role to play of internalizing the scriptures and meditating on them. And then the Holy Spirit speaks to us through those scriptures. We have a role to play, though. We have work to do. Not in a negative sense, but yeah, we have to sit down and and, and know the Bible. So, and there's a great resource. It's called openbible.info. There is a spot on this website where you, where you can just type in a word. It says, what does the Bible say about blank? And you can type in that word and it'll just give you verse after verse after verse after verse, just letting you know what the Bible says about that. And so it's a helpful resource if you're just trying to see, well, what, is the, what else does the Bible say about forgiveness or self-control or whatever it is that you're looking up? So, the first is pray and just ask the Lord for wisdom. The second is to get into his word and more importantly, let his word get into you to really begin to meditate on the scriptures and seek what it says about a certain topic that you may be dealing with. And third, and this is very important and oftentimes overlooked, Proverbs fifteen twenty two says, without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Talk to other believers about this. Talk to your pastor about it. Talk to your uh, friends who have a solid walk with the Lord about this and ask them their advice and their counsel. This is, you know, the Lord oftentimes speaks to us through other believers and they have a lot of wisdom that we may not have gotten yet. So with with a multitude of counselors, there is success. You see, with many advisors, they succeed. And so those are the three things that I would recommend uh, when dealing with this topic. But it is very important to realize for every it is written, there is an it is also written. Because listen, there have been a lot of Christian, you know, I'm I'm not going to call them Christian movements. There's a lot of things that have been cults. 
a lot of cults over the years that have started with people who have known how to take and to twist the text to say things that it does not. And they have amassed a huge following all because nobody has stood up and said, yeah, but it is also written. You are misusing that scripture and you are isolating it from the rest of the Bible. This is very important, you guys. So for every it is written, there is an it is also written. All right. God bless you guys. I'll see you next time.